0: 1 Kings 17 to 22, and then into chapter 2 of the next book, 2 Kings, is the story of a man named Elijah. It is the story of a man who is known for his boldness and his courage. It is a prolonged story. I went through the Bible from beginning to end and counted all of the people whose lives are described with as many words as Elijah. And Elijah is definitely in the top 20, perhaps in the top 10 of people who are, who have A large amount of the Bible to explain their lives. Six chapters of the Bible are devoted to this man. We know more about him than we do about Adam, Noah, Isaac, John the Baptist. We may know more about this man than we know about Peter, the great apostle. And there is a reason that God wants us to know about this man's life. And throughout the week, I was grappling with one question. Why does God want us to know about Elijah? If you would ever like to minister God's word, to explain God's word to God's people, then that is the question that you must ask every time you prepare to open the Bible. Why did God put this in his word? And especially we need to ask that when we're dealing with a large passage of scripture or with a man whose life is explained at great length. So I want to answer the question today, why is Elijah's life recorded At such a great length. He's in the book of the kings. But he's not a king. You know that we have. Seventeen books. Given to the prophets. Why not give Elijah. His own book in the prophets. Why not have. Isaiah. Jeremiah. Ezekiel. Daniel. And Elijah. But he's in the book of the kings. And that's what we want to study today. Miracles have been silent for about 500 years. And yet now God is going to give eight miracles at the hand of this great prophet. And I believe he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets for two reasons. Number one, he's prophesied in the book of Malachi as the one who will introduce Jesus Christ Not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, it's Elijah. And secondly, in Luke chapter 1 verse 17, Elijah, uh, John the Baptist comes in the spirit of Elijah. This is a man who is specially blessed and referenced in the New Testament. And he is a man that God wants us to know about. He's a prophet in the northern country, the country of Israel, not Judah. Remember, Israel was the country that had no good kings. But yet, God still gives them a great prophet. He sometimes gives the greatest men to the most carnal and backsliding people. This country has only bad kings, and Elijah comes to the worst of those bad kings, a man named Ahab. We studied his life last week. Ahab's life is an example of a man who was given so much grace, so much blessing, and yet he rejected all of God's grace. We are going to study Elijah's life this morning in a series of eights. The number eight. He performed eight miracles. His life stretches over eight chapters. And he's mentioned in each of those eight chapters. Even though his life's story is only in six of the chapters. Eight times the Bible says the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Or the angel of the Lord spoke to Elijah. And the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. There are eight stories recorded about Elijah. What do these stories tell us? Well, they give us a number of examples of Elijah's boldness. And that is the theme today. Since Elijah had the truth, he was bold. That's the whole message in one sentence. Since he knew I'm standing on truth, he was bold. I want you to be bold, like Elijah. Follow me as I follow him. And where I deviate, don't follow me, but follow Elijah. Let's follow the message today under three headings. Each of them is the boldness of a different man. Let's start with Elijah because he's the subject of our text. Number one, the boldness of Elijah. What is boldness? Here's a definition if you want to write it down boldness is crossing the will of others for the sake of the truth. Boldness is when you cross someone else's will for the sake of the truth. It's not bold if everyone holds to the truth. (laughs) If you're in a place where everyone loves what you love and you stand up and say something that everyone agrees with, that's not bold. Boldness is when you come into conflict with someone. So it's not possible to be bold in heaven, just like it's not possible to have faith in heaven. 2 Corinthians says, We walk by faith and not by sight. But someday we will walk by sight and not by faith. When we are in heaven, we will see God. We won't need to have faith. We will see him. Boldness is a virtue like faith. It's only for this earth. It's a boldness. It's a virtue like repentance. It's only needed for this earth. It's a, it's a virtue like evangelism. It's only needed for this earth. But wow, is it needed. We are in desperate need of boldness. Because even the Christian church is struggling and reeling on all sides. This week, I passed out these flyers in everyone's post box about the coronavirus. And I received a message this week. Question number three in these flyers says, Why does God send disease and other problems? Answer, answer. God is calling us to humility. Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. Those verses, 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 say, I withhold rain. I send disasters. I send diseases. And if my people will humble themselves and pray, I will forgive their sins. Did you follow that? That's what the verses say. I send those things, and so you must humble yourself. The message I got this week on my phone someone said, I got your flyer in the post box, and you are very wrong. That's their exact words. You are very wrong to say that God wants us to humble ourselves. He does not send disease. That was the message. You see, we need boldness because that person thinks... I don't even know who it is. That person thinks he is a Christian. He thinks he's a believer. And the verse that obviously the person didn't even read the verse that's written on the flyer that says, I send disease. So I want you to humble yourself. Hey, it is very... And she's... He... Said It's not even wrong. It's very wrong. Those were the exact words. You are very wrong to say we need to humble ourselves, Or that God sends disease. Friends, we need boldness. We're terrified of what people will think about us. We're, we're frightened about everything around us. And boldness is a crossing of the will of others for the sake of the truth. Elijah had that. Let's see it. Chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, Ahab is the king. He has killed many people and he can kill Elijah. Ahab Elijah, I'm sorry, says right to Ahab in his presence. Jehovah, the God of Israel lives. And before whom I stand, there will not come rain on this land these three years. That's boldness. Chapter 17, verse 13. He's with a widow woman. And the widow woman, he asks her for a drink of water in a famine. The widow woman says, I'm in despair. Verse 12, I have no food. I've just got a little bit of meal and I'm going to make a cake for my son and I and then we're going to die. And the man after that says in verse 13, don't fear, but go first and make a cake for me. That's boldness. Would you say that? Would you come to a woman who is in despair and feeling as if I'm about to die and say, I want the last that you've got. Chapter 18, verse 18, this is the most famous example of his boldness. Chapter 18 is the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. We're not dealing with the entire chapter today. We're not going to do the the chapter verse by verse, but we'll look at a few verses. Verse 18 Elijah, after three years, meets with Ahab. Ahab says to him, Are you the one who troubles Israel? 18, and Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed Baal. That's bold. He contradicts the king. Most of us are afraid of contradicting. Elijah contradicts the king. He not only contradicts him, he says, God is angry with you. Look in verse 19. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel to Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal, 450. And the prophets of the groves, 400. Which eat at Jezebel's table. He calls for a contest, a public contest between him and the prophets of Baal. How many prophets are there? 450, and he's going to challenge them and conflict with their wills in public. Verse 27, one of the boldest verses in the entire Bible, when these prophets of Baal are making their sacrifices and cutting themselves. In verse 27 it says, And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, cry out, shout, for he's a God. And then he says four things in which he mocks this false God. What does he say? Number one... Perhaps he's meditating, he's talking, he's visiting with someone. Number two, there's a Hebrew word that means he has a pursuit. And in the ESV, it translates it very bluntly. He's relieving himself. Elijah is making fun of those men and their religion. If you make fun of people's religion today, they call you Islamophobic, and they'll even call you a racist. Elijah wasn't born in 1970 or 1980. Elijah didn't, didn't believe in this uh, cancel culture and hypersensitivity. He says, you're God. Maybe he's out visiting people. Maybe he's on the toilet. Perhaps he's out taking a walk. Maybe he's sleeping. You have to wake him up. Perhaps Elijah was thinking there of David's words. He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. He's very bold. Look at verse 33, the same chapter. Elijah put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood and he said do it the second time and they did it the second time and he said do it the third time and they did it the third time and the water ran round about the altar and filled the trench also with water. He's so bold that he is going to say, not only is God going to win, not only is he going to crush your God, but he's going to do it so dramatically that no one will have any reason or evidence to doubt. I'm so bold that I'm not going to leave myself any room to be embarrassed. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said to them, take the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and asked them politely not to talk about that stuff anymore. What did he do? This is a man who conflicts with the will of others. He slew the prophets of Baal, 450 men. He was following the law's commands to slay those who would lead an Israelite astray. That law is not binding on the church today because it would require that missions and evangelism would not be permitted. If we only killed those in a false religion, if Christians killed those who were in a false religion, you could not do what? Evangelize Evangelize them. And immediately, what would happen? People who were afraid of being killed would pretend to be Christians when they are not Christians. Under the new covenant, God does not want us to do what Elijah did in the exact letter of what he did. But God does want that same spirit of boldness under the new covenant... He wants us to have the boldness to confront false religion. He wants us to have boldness to recognize there is absolutely no middle ground between truth and falsehood. Look at chapter 19, verse 19. In chapter 19, it's the story of Elijah's depression. Depression. Elijah's depression teaches us many things about human nature. Often, after a great victory, there will be temptations to go very low. How many of you know that? Maybe you heard a great sermon and you felt so near to God, and the next week you didn't even come to church. You felt so low. How many of you have done something, you've sacrificed, you've evangelized, you spoke to someone about the gospel, and you felt, I'm doing it. I'm following Christ. God is pleased with me. And two days later, you did something and think, oh, I can't even show up. I I don't want anyone to know about that. This is the pattern of human nature. In chapter 18, Elijah has a great victory. And in chapter 19, He falls to depression. He's depressed for over a month. And how does he get out of this depression? Well, number one, he eats. Number two, he sleeps. That's in verse six. And I take from that simply that we need to take care of our bodies. Our bodies can greatly affect our minds and our hearts and our souls. If you're sick, you need to take care of that sickness. How else does he handle the depression? This is really remarkable. Look at verse 14. We'll see his depression and then the way God cures him. Verse 14, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus And when you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehillah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in your room. Verse 18. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. How does God cure his, Ill, his sickness, his illness of depression? Two things. Number one, he gives him a lot of work. When we are depressed, we don't want to work. And God says, get to work. Your mind is a very, in some ways complex and in some ways very simple. If you will focus and direct your mind to a good task, it will help change a lot of things in your life. Just get to work. Do your duty. Oh, I feel so depressed I can't read my Bible. That's an excuse. Pick up your Bible and read it. I feel so depressed I can't come to church. That's an excuse. I feel so depressed I can't love my wife or pray or have devotions with my children. I feel so depressed I can't even go to work. Some people say that's what depression is. It's such a low feeling that you can't do anything. And the solution for that, at least part of the solution, is to get back and do your duty. Here's a man who wants to kill himself. And God says, okay, I'll give you a job. Go to this country and anoint that man to be king. Then go to this country and anoint him to be king. And then go to this place and get him to be the prophet who's going to follow you. The second cure for this is what? In verse 18. Get a, clear, get a clear understanding of what God is doing. Elijah thought that he was the only Christian. But God said it's not only you. How many are there? Now Israel a, 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 has a few million people. So 7,000 seems like what? A very small number out of the whole country. But if you had 7,000 people all in one place at one time, it would seem like a very large number. Get a clear picture of what God is doing. That's a good way to cure depression. Think much about heaven. Think much about his church. Think about missions. Pray for missionaries. Go be involved in missions if you are ever struggling with depression. Come with us on evangelism in the village. These are some of the ways that God cures the doubts of his people. Now look in verse 19, there's another example of boldness. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle on him and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said wait let's pause right here that's bold you go up to a man who's working in the field and you say to him I'm a man of God and I want you to leave this and come with me have you ever done that? would you think it was bold if I came up to you and said I'm glad to see you today I'd like you to quit your job And devote yourself entirely to evangelism with me. Would you think that I was being bold? Elijah was very bold. Chapter 21. Go to chapter 21. It's the section we read this morning. Elijah rebukes Ahab again. First of all, it starts in verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, oh my enemy? Does Ahab respect Elijah? Does Ahab respect Elijah? No, he thinks you're the enemy. What did Ahab just do in chapter 21? He just killed a man named Naboth. Ahab has the power to kill people. Elijah knows that. How would you feel just rebuking President Ramaphosa? President Ramaphosa will not kill you. Maybe he'll tax you, maybe he'll do, he won't kill you. Elijah has so much boldness that he goes right up to Ahab again. And when Ahab says, hey, 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 before you even open your mouth, I just want to tell you, you're my enemy. Just so you know what's happening, I kill people that I disagree with, and I disagree with you. What do you want to say? Would you, would you just say, ah, oh, you know, I, I don't have nothing today. Just going to say, I like, I, like, I, like your, I like your clothes, you look sharp today. Well, what would you do? Elijah, for the next five verses, says, if that's the way you're going to talk, let me just be very plain. God is angry with you for the blood of that man, so angry that you and all your sons are going to die, every one of them. And you're going to die in such an ugly way that dogs will eat you and lick your blood. Go ahead. You can do what you want with me. Where is that today? Go to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. Ahab is now dead. His son Ahaziah is on the throne. And in 2 Kings 1 verse 3. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Ahab's son Ahaziah was sick and he was going to ask the prophets of Beelzebub. He can't ask the prophets of Baal because what happened to all of them? They were all killed. He has to go to another false God. And Elijah, imagine he says, I just cleaned up this place. I just got rid of all those guys. Now you're bringing another false god in here. Elijah does not sit back. Imagine he could say, I told them. I told them. They know I already killed the other 450. You can't, you can't. These guys, they won't listen. Elijah knows they won't listen. And he goes to him anyway and rebukes him. Verse 4. Now therefore, thus says Jehovah... You will not come down from the bed on which you are gone up, but will surely die. And then he does it again in verse 16. Now in verse 16, he does it right to his face. Look in verse 16. He said to him, Elijah says to the king, thus says the Lord. For as much as you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it not because there is no God in Israel to inquire of this word? Therefore you will not come down from off the bed on which you are gone up, but you will surely die. Verse 17. So he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. That's a bold man. Not only does Elijah... Tell the servants of the king, that's not enough. He's got to go straight to the king and boldly confront him and tell him. He does more. When Elijah tells the king's messengers, the messengers go back to King Ahaziah and say, we met a man who rebuked us. He said, what did he look like? And they describe him. Ah, oh, that's Elijah, the Tishbite. Get 50 soldiers and send a captain at their head to go catch him. And you know what happens? In verse 10, look at verse 10. And Elijah answered and said to the captain, 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50, verse 11. Again also he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus has the king said, Come down. What's the last word of verse 11? In verse 9, the, the captain just says, Come down. But this second captain, even after God sends fire from heaven, he's so foolish. He adds the word, Hey, boy, move, move. When I say move, you move. Quickly, run. Verse 12 Elijah answered and said, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. That's boldness. But you can expect that from a man who just killed 450 false prophets. This is a man who does not fear conflicting with the wills of others. He's bold again in chapter 2 when he deals with Elisha. He tells Elisha to leave. Chapter 2 verse 2, 2 verse 4, 2 verse 6. Look at chapter 2 verse 9. It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I will do for you before I be taken away. And Elisha said, I pray you let a double portion of your spirit be on me. Wouldn't you like to have a double portion of of that spirit? Wouldn't you like to have the boldness and courage? Because in your heart, you look at Elijah and think, wow, that's a real man. But you're not like him. And I'm not like him. We're weak. If someone conflicts with us, we back off. The only time that we're really bold with people is when we're bold in a sinful way. Maybe you get angry at your wife. and So you think, I'm not going to back down. She's going to back down. That's boldness in a sinful way. But remember the definition of boldness. It is crossing with the will of others for the sake of the truth. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the glory of God. Not for you to show your will as being stronger than someone else. Not for selfishness and pride. What words would you use to describe Elijah? Strong. Bold. Courageous. Submissive to God. And I would add, otherworldly. He didn't think much about comfort and ease on this life. He didn't think much about a big house. Elijah is in the Bible because the kings of the earth need help. That's why he's there. They are always falling backward in their devotion, in their worship to God, they are imbalanced. And so they need a powerful example like Elijah to come and change them. I told you this message has three points, and that's the first one the boldness of Elijah. But if we need Elijah in the Old Testament, who do we need in the New Testament? Is the Lord Jesus Christ bold? He rebukes the leader of his men in front of the men. Matthew 16 verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You do not savor the things which are of God, but the things which are of men. Who is he talking to? Peter. Remember, our Lord Jesus is 33 years old. That's not very old. Peter was possibly older than him. And he rebukes Peter in front of the men. He's not afraid, oh, well, Peter will quit. He refuses to speak at his trial. Imagine being being taken by the police. You're taken to the police station and they start asking you questions and you refuse to speak. Is that not boldness? What do they want you to do? They say, Who, what's your name? No, what is your name? They want answers from you and you refuse to open your mouth. That is boldness. You are conflicting with the will of the authorities. What if they put you in prison? What if they were, you were on trial for death? You're going to die. I'm not going to answer you. Matthew 27, verse 12, when the chief priests and Pharisees accused him, he answered nothing. But, but it's not true that he said no words. It just means that for the hours when they were questioning him, for a number of those hours, he refused to answer. But he did tell Pilate in the third illegal trial, you know, he had three trials He had one before the Jewish leaders called the Sanhedrin. And he had one before Herod. And he had one before Pilate. To Pilate, Jesus rebukes him and says, you could have no authority at all unless it were given to you. Pilate thinks he's in charge. He looks at this poor man, this this traveling street preacher. Who are you? No one even knows who you are. Your father is dead. You're a nobody. You're poor. And now your people want to kill you. What have you done? What's the problem here? And he says, you? You think you're in control. You have no power unless it were given to you. He rebukes the Pharisees in a large group while they're present. Matthew 23 verse 1. This is really amazing. The Pharisees are there a group of people, 10, 15, 20, I don't know how many, but there's a group of men who are angry with Jesus, the 33-year-old, and they're 50, 60 and 70 years old. They rebuke Jesus repeatedly in public in front of a large crowd with those people present. Jesus attacks them in Matthew 23. He calls them children of hell. He calls them snakes. He calls them tombs full of dead bones. He says you're murderers. That's boldness. But there is greater boldness coming in the future. The greatest boldness is when Jesus Christ will return In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest boldness is when he returns and he will conflict with the wills of all those who do not bow to him right now. He will conquer them. He will throw them down and he will rule the world with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 verse 9 and Revelation 12 verse 5. Elijah is just a picture of our Lord Jesus. Do you love him? Do you know him? Will you order your life like him? And that leads us to our third and final point. The boldness of Elijah is from the text. And it points to the boldness of Jesus Christ. Who's the third man? The boldness of a godly Christian. A godly Christian must live by the Bible. And some people will call him strict if he lives by the Bible. Recently, I heard someone told me that some people call me and this church strict. They said that if I would relax, then the church would grow. Some people will say that you are strict if you follow the Bible. But those people say that you are strict because they are following their lusts and they do not want to repent. They do not want the Bible's kind of religion. They want their own version of religion. But a godly Christian man must live by the Bible. Regardless of what people say. Why must a godly Christian be bold? Because we are in a great spiritual war. Remember that all around us there is a war going on right now for the souls of your children. I respect you for taking steps in your life to change where you live and the comfort that you have with a good job so that you can reach your children because there is a war taking place for your kids. In fact, the Bible describes it as someone shooting arrows that are set on fire. An arrow might kill, but a fiery arrow can burn it down. The Bible describes our enemy as a ravenous lion. The Bible describes our enemy as a terrifying dragon. Someone who is implacable and unchanging in his hatred and wickedness. We change because we are not strong enough to go on in a settled course of action. But Satan is strong enough to go on in his hatred and sin. That is the one we are fighting against. And he has more strength than you. And he can outlast you. And he can outlast your children. You need boldness because that is what we are facing. You need boldness because the opinions of other people exercise a very strong pull over you. Isn't that right? I think all men are influenced by the men around them. But in a unique way, Africans are influenced by the men and women around them Because our lives and our culture are built with the broader family, the extended family. You'll call someone your brother who's actually the son of your father's sister's brother-in-law. You'll say, oh, that's my brother. But what that means is that you have an idea in your mind that all of these people are your brothers and your uncles and who wants to make all your brothers angry. So it's going to be very difficult for you if you have to stand as a a biblical Christian and you've got a hundred family members because when you have a hundred family members you're going to have a hundred opinions. And you're going to need the boldness and courage of Elijah To stand against them. How many of us have resisted the Holy Spirit when we knew the Holy Spirit was speaking to us. And we resisted that because we knew that lady won't like it. Or that man will get angry at me. Husbands, don't we know what this is like? We thought this is the right thing to do. But if I do that, my wife won't be happy. Wives, have you ever known that? I've got to pray, read my Bible, I've got to do this thing or that thing. I know God wants me to do it. But if I do it, my children, my husband, my friends, my family, they'll get angry. How does our world feel about biblical boldness? Our world calls it intolerance. If you are biblically bold, they say you are intolerant. They'll call you a bigot. And these days, because they've never studied logic, and because all they want is power, they will call you a racist. If you say Islam is a bad religion, they'll call you a racist. Can anything be more insane? It's a religion, not a color of skin, Our world calls boldness extreme and unbalanced. They will say, if you follow the Bible and church discipline, they, are, they will say you are unbalanced. Just Saturday morning, I was at Easy Build, picking up some materials to go build the shack in Valdesia. And as I was there, I spoke to a man, and we began speaking about the Bible. And it turns out this man is from Petersburg. From a church that I know. And so we began talking for a few moments. Just like that. He said. Oh and you know these. There are these pastors that believe in church discipline. Oh you can't, you can't trust these pastors that talk about church discipline all the time. And I said well. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 18. And immediately he said. Oh, oh, oh. that's extreme. That's imbalanced. Church discipline is okay if you have it with a balance. But the problem is people take church discipline and it's imbalanced. And they they want to be extreme about it. I thought, very interesting. People will call you uneducated. They will call you misguided. If you are biblically bold. But Jesus warned us about this in Luke 6.26. He said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Years ago, Billy Graham, he was a very popular preacher. Perhaps the, spe- the preacher who spoke to more people living than anyone in the world. Because he, he had these enormous crusades. Billy Graham compromised the gospel from back in the 1950s. And for 60 years, Billy Graham compromised the five solas. And in the 1990s, he was on a television show. He was, he was very famous, and he was on a television show where they asked questions about him. And the man who was asking the questions was a Jew, not a Christian, Larry King. And Larry King asked him, did you like this president of the United States? And Billy Graham said, oh, we went to lunch together and we played golf together. And Larry King said, did you like this president? And he said, oh, we always did this and this together. Oh, I was friends with every president for the last 12 presidents or something. And then Larry King said this, it seems like everyone likes you, Billy. Luke 6.26, woe to you. When all men speak well of you. Because it was already promised. Jesus promised this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 verses 10 and 11. Blessed are you when men will speak evil against you. When they will say all manner of evil against you. For my sake. Rejoice and be extra glad. Be extra happy when they say things against you. For my sake. Brothers and sisters. We need boldness. We are not bold. We are too weak. And tired. And tepid. And cold. We're afraid to give a flyer to someone. We're afraid to pray for them. We're afraid to invite them to church. May we today learn. From Elijah. God's pattern. For us. For boldness. Let's close our eyes.